Good morning, everyone. The American Film Institute has a list of what they consider to be the 100 most memorable movie quotes of all time. Number one, no surprise to anyone, is Rhett Butler's line to Scarlett O'Hara, frankly, my dear, I don't give a darn. <laughs> That's Rhett's covenant member version. <laughs> it's an interesting list. There's everything on it from here's looking at you, kid, to my personal favorite. There's no crying in baseball. Number 29 is a quote from a movie, the movie A Few Good Men. The quote comes from a scene in a military courtroom where Tom Cruise playing a naval lawyer who is defending two Marines who have been charged with in the killing of another soldier. He is cross-examining a grizzled and defiant Marine commander, Colonel Jessup, who is played by Jack Nicholson. Nicholson's character is being extremely uncooperative as a witness. So finally, Cruz shouts at him, I want the truth! And Jessup fires back, you can't handle the truth. It's a memorable quote because it's so true. Sometimes we can't handle the truth. Sometimes the truth is hard to bear. Sometimes we just don't want to handle the truth. For example, jelly donuts do not lower cholesterol. <laughs> Haagen-Dazs is not Danish for antioxidant. <laughs> Those statements are regrettably true. I wish they weren't, but they are. They are what I call inconvenient truths. They inconvenience my life in ways that tempts me to just ignore them. Now, those examples are trivial, of course, whereas there are any number of important truths that are nevertheless deemed too inconvenient to accept because they would require that we change our lives in certain ways. This kind of response to truth is no new thing. It's as old as humankind. And that's the kind of world that a prophet named Amos confronted in the 8th century B.C. Amos was a sheep herder in Tekoa, in the land of Judah. And he delivered his oracles to the northern kingdom of Israel during the prosperous reign of Jeroboam II, from around 786 to 746 B.C. This short book of nine chapters is a stark and admittedly frightening piece of prophecy as Amos denounces the shallow prosperity of the northern kingdom. He begins his prophecy with a sweeping indictment of Philistia and, and Damascus and Tyre and Edom. But this herdsman-turned-preacher saves his climactic denunciation for Israel, whose injustice and idolatry are egregious sins against their covenant with God. 
Israel may claim to longingly anticipate the day of the Lord, but Amos tells them that that day will be darkness and not light. And so when Amos prophesies the overthrow of the sanctuary and the the fall of the royal house and the captivity of the people, it proves more than the leaders of the Israelite nation are willing to bear. Israel's sins represent a near total failure to live out their calling as God's people. And worst of all, they cover their sins with a veneer of religion. Eugene Peterson reminds us that religion is the most dangerous energy source known to humankind. You can't look around at our world today and doubt that statement. Peterson says the moment a person or a government or an organization is convinced that God is either ordering or sanctioning a cause or project, anything goes. That's where prophets like Amos come in. Prophets sniff out injustice, especially injustice dressed up in religious garb. Prophets are not impressed by power and position or authority. They aren't taken in by numbers, by size, or by appearances of success. So Amos comes to Bethel to confront Israel with the depths of its moral and religious failures and to urge the nation to repent before judgment comes. The seventh chapter opens with Amos seeing two visions of terrible judgment upon Israel, which so horrify him that he pleads with God, and God relents. But in the seventh verse, Amos is shown an equally chilling picture of Israel's future. The Lord stands by a wall with a plumb line in his hand. I know that some of you have used plumb lines when building something to ensure that the building is properly constructed. A wall out of plumb is a recipe for disaster. But in Scripture, plumb lines are not only used to build houses, but to destroy them. They are an icon of judgment. 2 Kings 21.13, God says to his prophets, I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria. I will stretch out over and, and excuse me, and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. In Isaiah 28:17, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. This is the sense of the vision that is given to Amos. The plumb line, which is the law of God, the Torah, will be the basis of judgment against Israel. And the Lord bluntly promises that Israel will be spared no longer. And this is the message that Amos proclaims to the house of Jeroboam while he's standing smack dab in the middle of the general headquarters building of the Israelite religious establishment. Unsurprisingly, these words attract the attention of an important religious leader named Amaziah who promptly relays Amos' actions and words to the royal house. Amos' words are considered treasonous by the religious officials of Israel. 
One of the oldest and most common ways to respond to inconvenient truth is to always question the patriotism of the prophet. Biblically, Amos is in good company here with Elijah and Jeremiah and, of course, Jesus. All of these truth-tellers were subjected to the, he's a traitor approach, or let's kill the messenger response. And, of course, in Jesus' case, it was, let's crucify him. Speaking the truth to power is a very dangerous occupation. It is not for the faint of heart. History is full of stories about what happens to people who inconvenience the powers that be with the truth. I'm always reminded of Carl Menninger's words that you can sum up the entire moral history of humankind in three words. They hang prophets. Be assured that if you inconvenience people with the truth, they will react and there may well be blood. So in verse 12, Amaziah tells Amos in so many words, get lost. Tells him that he's not welcome in these parts, that he needs to go back to Judah, earn his preaching salary there, because here in Bethel, here in Israel, we don't need any outsiders poking their noses into our lives, because we've got a good thing going here. This is the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. So butt out, bumpkin, and hightail it back home. Amos responds to Amaziah's insinuation that he's in it for the money. His reply here is the classic story of a reluctant prophet. A man whose life was turned upside down by the call of Yahweh. Amos says, in effect, no one in his or her right mind does this for the money or material gain, you do it for one reason alone, and that's that God has chosen you to speak on his behalf. So listen up, Amaziah, here's the deal. You don't want me to speak truth that inconveniences the kingdom of Israel, but you need to understand that just because it's inconvenient does not negate the fact that it's the truth. And you should know that judgment has a personal as well as a national ramification to it. And Amos proceeds to tell Amaziah the horrible truth about his own family's destiny under judgment. This is a sobering text. It is the Old Testament reading for the eighth Sunday after Pentecost. I chose it over the gospel reading because I looked at the gospel reading, a good Samaritan. I mean, how many sermons have we heard about that? I mean, I thought of the hymn, what more can he say than to you has been said? <laughs> and, so, and so I chose Amos 7. But the, more, the longer I worked with this text, the more apprehensive I became. Honestly, I figure I can get myself run out of town with this chapter. So let me very carefully suggest some ways that I think that this text might speak to us here today. First and foremost, the plumb line is very real. There is a standard against which all people, including God's people, 
are measured. The plumb line exists even where people find it inconvenient or where they're in denial. And, and judgment ultimately is sure and certain no matter what some may want to claim. As Flannery O'Connor put it, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Just in case someone's thinking, well, right on. It's about time someone talked about the judgment of sin. You need to recognize this. The plumb line that Amos sees here is not about giving some overzealous Bible thumpers license to grab a couple of their favorite verses, typically taken out of context, and go flailing away at their chosen windmills in the name of truth-telling. It is amazing to me and frightening how easily we get distracted with peripheral issues, claiming that we've got to draw a line in the sand here, all the while conveniently ignoring the Bible's most common themes that we love one another and that we treat one another like we would want to be treated. And the main reason we ignore it is because it inconveniences us so. We'd actually have to change our lives. We'd have to change our values, our consumption, in ways that we simply do not want to do. So let's get all fired up about things that ultimately do not matter, and we'll call it being faithful to the Bible. Jesus calls it straining at gnats and swallowing camels. Read it for yourselves. Virtually all of what Amos rails against in the nine chapters that bear his name has to do with the way that people in power are treating those who are powerless. It is mostly about justice. It is mostly about treating others as if they too are created in the image of God. For example, listen to what God says in this opening litany of judgment in chapter 2. He says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, little G, they drink wine taken as fines. The plumb line, as it turns out, has little or nothing to do with what typically gets Christians all riled up these days. No, a careful reading of Scripture, a close reading of the book of Amos, tells us that the plumb line of judgment is summed up in the way we relate to one another and the way the poor are treated or neglected. The plumb line is summed up in the answer to that question, and who is my neighbor? The plumb line is summed up with the word inasmuch, as in inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. We need to put aside the issues of distraction and get back to the plumb line by which we as nations and individuals will actually be judged. First and foremost, that means for us as Christians that the ultimate plumb line is Jesus. 
while the Torah was, was the way for Israel to walk with God, Jesus, his life, his teachings, that is the measuring standard for Christians. Hebrews 1.1 says that in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is God's final authoritative word to humankind. And I don't know if you have noticed this or not, but to start taking Jesus seriously is bound to inconvenience you in certain ways. Christianity Today had an article on John Kasich right after he dropped out of the presidential race. The article noted the irony of this man who, among those running for president, arguably had the most obvious history as an actual practicing Christian. And yet he was so completely rejected by others, especially by Christians, largely because he told the truth. Kasich has the temerity to claim that his faith leads him to positions that sometimes fall outside of party doctrine. In a room full of potential donors, Kasich was asked by a one woman why, as governor of Ohio, he agreed to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, extending health insurance to more low-income people. Kasich responded in in front of an audience full of wealthy, libertarian-leaning donors. He said, I don't know about you, lady, but when I get to the pearly gates, I'm going to have to answer for what I've done for the poor. According to Politico, about 20 of those donors got up and left the room. And all of Kasich's opponents jumped in and started disagreeing with him. And John Kasich was never invited back to one of those meetings again. Apparently, inconvenient truth costs you votes, donor support. Folks, let's be crystal clear about this. America won't be judged because of who uses which restroom. America will be judged by by how it treats the poor, by how it welcomes the strangers, by how it treats the most vulnerable citizens in our midst, the, the, the children and the elderly. America will be judged for its love affair with violence, for its willful blindness to issues of race and gender and class, for its arrogant disregard. America will be judged for its pretensions to empire in a world where Jesus is Lord. The plumb line is real, and it is an inconvenient truth. Another application suggested by this text has to do with the difficult task of being a prophet in these days and times. It's a vast understatement to claim that these are interesting and difficult days for prophets. In case you haven't noticed, preaching is no longer what we might have once considered to be privileged speech. Nobody automatically listens to the pastor anymore. There are multiple reasons for that. It's clearly one evidence, probably, of of the postmodern skepticism regarding authoritative truth claims. For another reason, and it pains me to say this, but so much of modern preaching has become so inane and insipid that only the most ardently committed can endure it. 
Yet it's not hard to imagine people sitting in churches thinking, why do I come to hear this? I can get this from Oprah or Dr. Phil. But beyond that, Amos' story reminds us that being a real prophet often comes at a cost. Saying painful things to people who are paying your salary, that's a daunting prospect. So rather than inconveniencing people with the truth, there are far too many modern-day prophets who have lowered their voices in order to raise their budgets. And of course, this takes a terrible toll on the church. Charles Spurgeon said this in the 19th century, said, A time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. We may be there. But our text suggests that sometimes prophets are simply prevented from proclaiming their message by a crowd that refuses to be inconvenienced by the truth. I wonder how many pastors have figuratively been run out of Bethel because they dared to speak an inconvenient truth. Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out because a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Over my lifetime, I have seen more than a few prophets destroyed by people with very selective hearing. A lot of messengers have effectively been silenced. I've been told by people at different times that I have a particular bent towards the prophetic. I admit that. I will get in people's faces from time to time. But like Amos, I came to this kicking and screaming. Some of you know my own personal Jonah story. So you will never meet a more reluctant prophet. The truth is, I blame any prophetic edge that I might have on Houghton Church. (laughs) It's all your fault. I was talking to a friend recently who relayed a conversation he, he had had with an elder saint of this congregation. He said, my name came up in the conversation, and this older saint said, yeah, we turned him into a pretty good preacher. (laughs) He's exactly right. If I have any ability towards truth-telling, it's due to the people of this church creating and maintaining a climate in which the truth could be told. See, a a lot of modern church members don't get this. But forming pastors is exactly what congregations are supposed to be doing. Unfortunately, today, far too many churches aren't forming prophets. They're forming spiritual entrepreneurs or religious salesmen who are more interested in garnering a larger market share than the competition down the street. So I freely acknowledge today my debt to this church. Some of those who are responsible for creating this monster, you're sitting here this morning. You know who you are. Many others, I and Pastor Wes, have laid to rest in Mount Pleasant, south of town. 
that this congregation formed me in such a way that I thought that it was the normal duty of a shepherd to try to tell the truth, no matter how it might inconvenience them. And to your everlasting credit, you encouraged it, even when the implications were hard and complicating. And would to God that this church will always be a place where reluctant prophets can speak from the heart. Finally, I think that this text reminds us that the people of God are, in the final analysis, the people of the Word. Regardless of what we might claim our view of Scripture to be, the real test of our belief in the Bible is our willingness to hear and obey God's Word. Even if, especially if, we find it inconvenient to do so. Because one of the alternatives to obeying the word is to suffer the disappearance of the word. Listen to what Amos says in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. The good news for anyone who's willing to hear is that God has not gone silent. Jesus is the eternal plumb line. His life and his teachings speak loudly and clearly into our lives. He is the standard, and our willingness to handle the truth begins and ends with following him. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. I recently read the story of Kyle Childress, Pastor Kyle Childress, pastors of Baptist Church in Nacogdoches, Texas. He was writing because he was talking about his refusal as a pastor to endorse guns in his church. Since January 1st, in Texas, it's legal for licensed gun owners to openly carry a gun in public places, including church, unless the church posts a sign at every entrance that says no to guns and follows specific guidelines that dictates the wording on the sign. Childress says that the church down the road from his voted over the pastor's objection to arm the ushers. Interesting ramifications to that. <laughs> Clergy in this small city assume that on any given Sunday, a considerable number of their attendees are carrying guns. And most of the churches in Nacogdoches have declined to post signs. Some churches post signs that say, Guns welcomed here. They say it's an act of outreach. Pastor Kyle explained to his congregation during a sermon on baptism why he won't be carrying a gun in the pulpit or anywhere else. Has to do with baptism, he says. When I went down into the waters of baptism 
I did not come out to strap on a gun. I came out entering into the life of the crucified and resurrected Jesus. These days, there's hardly any way to follow Jesus and not find yourself swimming against the cultural stream. There's no way to follow Jesus and not be inconvenienced at some time and in some way by the truth of the gospel. But some people can't handle that. There's that poignant scene in John 6 where Jesus lays down some heavy truth about himself and, and it's just too much for some of them to handle. And in John in six, verse 66, John says that from that point forward, many of his disciples turned back and followed him no longer. Jesus then turns to the twelve and asks them point blank, will you go away too? Peter's response is, where? Where would we go? Personally, I'm convinced that there's a Greek manuscript somewhere that has Peter responding to Jesus. We sold the boats! Where are we going to go? They haven't found that manuscript, yes, but, yeah, but I trust they will someday. You start following Jesus, and it's going to get complicated. It's going to be inconvenient from time to time. But you might as well sell the boats. You might as well burn your bridges. Because Peter was right. He said, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And that's the truth. Can you handle that? Let's pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, but we have to confess to you that sometimes we find it extremely inconvenient because it goes against our culture, it goes against our inner desires, it goes against our courage. I pray that you will enable us to so trust you that we might be able to faithfully follow Christ in this day and age. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the way that it has so powerfully affected my own life and the lives of so many others because of its willingness to allow the truth to be proclaimed. And I pray that you will bless this church and continue to use it as a beacon in your world and here in Allegheny County. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.